Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Lynn F., and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Toronto, Canada. Today is Friday, October 26, 2018. We are reading from the Big Book, and we are at page 148, the fourth paragraph, the other day in approach, reading through five paragraphs, ending with getting them straightened out and commenting on all five paragraphs. Today's readers are Lisa L., Zykea A., and readers of the text, Lauren N., Madeline R., and Kelly F. The reference numbers for yesterday, Thursday, October the 25th, the 7 a.m. meeting, 12099, and the 10 a.m. meeting, 12100. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Lisa L. to read the 12 steps. Hi, this is Lisa L. from Brooklyn. The 12 steps. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa L. And Zakiah A. will read the 12 traditions. Hi, good morning. This is Zakiah J. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> a recovering compulsive overeater. Thank you so much. 
um, from New York, The Twelve Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. Tradition one, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group would never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, leave some problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should be should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such would never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name would never be drawn in public into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media, other public media of communications. And 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for allowing me to serve, and I'll mute. Thank you, Zakia J. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive readers only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book on page 148, the fourth paragraph, the other day in approach, through five paragraphs ending with getting them straightened out and commenting on all five paragraphs. 
And Lauren N., would you get started for us, please? Thank you. This is Lauren N. Can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Lauren N. from New York, compulsive overeater and sugar addict. The other day, an approach was made to the vice president of a large industrial concern. He remarked, I'm mighty glad you fellows got over your drinking. But the policy of this company is not to interfere with the habits of our employees. If a man drinks so much that his job suffers, we fire him. I don't see how you can be of any help to us, for as you see, we don't have any alcoholic problem. This same company spends millions for research every year. Their cost of production is figured to a fine decimal point. They have recreational facilities. There is company insurance. There is a real interest, both humanitarian and business, in the well-being of employees. But alcoholism, well, they don't, they just don't believe they have it. Perhaps this is a typical attitude. We who have collectively seen a great deal of business life, at least from the alcoholic angle, had had to smile at this gentleman's sincere opinion. He might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization a year. That company may harbor many actual or potential alcoholics. We believe that managers of large enterprises often had have little idea how prevalent this problem is. Even if you feel your organization has no alcoholic problem, it might pay to take a look, another look down the line. You may, ha- may make some interesting discoveries. Of course, this can, chapter refers to alcoholics, sick people, deranged men. What our friend, the vice president, had in mind was the habitual or whoopee drinker. As to them, his policy is undoubtedly sound, but he did not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. It is not to be expected that an alcoholic employee will receive a disproportionate amount of time and attention. He could not be made a favorite. He could, should not be made a favorite. The right kind of man, the right con- the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose. Far from it, he will work like a devil and thank you for his di- to his dying day. Today, I own a little company. There are two alcoholic employees who produce as much as five normal salesmen. But why not? They have a new attitude. They have been saved from living, from a living death. They have enjoyed every moment spend, spent in getting them straightened out. Thank you very much for my ability to read that. 
I, all I can say is that I've worked for so many large organizations where I worked with many alcoholics, but most importantly, I was trained and I was eating all the time and wasting so much time during my job while I was eating and not able to really focus and be the employee I was supposed to be or should be. I always felt like if anybody got to know me, then they wouldn't want to be with me. So I tried not to let people get to know me. Now, I've, for the past 20 years, I've been my own employer. And as such, I've worked with many an alcoholic. And I am so grateful that today I can distinguish others and learn how to give of myself and give of myself 150% to my employee to my clients and to my employee I w- use this I've seen this type of waste and belief that nobody else has suffers with this, and if so, we're just going to let them go. And guess what? They would let go their entire workforce, whether it be a workforce or their loved ones. And, and I suffer with lots of family friends and friends and family members that have this disease, and every day, I have to remind myself to be compassionate and loving towards all. And they'll hopefully find their way to this recovery. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Lauren N. The line is now open for sharing on what we just read. Please say your name just once as it helps me hear everyone. Who would like to share? Lisa B. from Boston. Harlan G. This is Larry. Kristen R. E. Okay, I've got our lineup right now. So I did miss some lady, but I'll tell you who I have. Lisa B., Katie G., Harlan G., Larry K., Barbara E., and there was somebody just before Barbara E. that I didn't catch. Kristen R. Great. That's a great lineup. Thank you, everybody. So we'll start with Lisa B. and then Katie G. And if you're not Lisa B., can you please check to make sure you're muted? Lisa, please go ahead. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service this morning. My name is Lisa B. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Greenville, South Carolina, and every so often I just say, I spell my name L-E-S-A, because sometimes there's confusion. Um, This is the first time I'm really reading and studying this chapter, so uh, my share might be off base, but I just wanted to share how I was hearing it. Um, 
and there is a solution that talks about how these are commonplace observations on drinking, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. And that's what I kind of hear from this um, this man that they went to go see, uh, this gentleman that had this company. And, you know, it's easy for a real compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety like I am to fall through the cracks because I look like I'm okay. And... Um, I, I seem like I'm okay, but I'm really not. I'm really not okay, and I'm not playing 100% when I'm in this illness. I'm not able to pay attention to directions. Um, I'm full of fear and anxiety of what you're going to think of me and how I'm going to look. I'm riddled with perfectionism, and I'm frustrated, majorly frustrated, and I'm wondering what the hell is wrong with me. What am I going to do when I get home? Am I going to have a binge? How am I not going to have a binge? How am I going to exercise? this body so I don't get fat. Those are all the things that consume me and prevent me from doing an honest day's work. That's the one thing that jumped out for me when it says he might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization a year. It cost employers, people that I worked for. Um, The other thing I love when he jumps down to um, the right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want this sort of thing. He will not impose, far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying day. You know, step one in the AA 12 and 12 is a great chapter to read. It's a great step to read in that, in that format because it talks about listening as only the dying can. I have to be aware and in touch that I am actually dying, even though I'm walking around still with a house, still with a job, still with a family, still with a car. I may not lose those things, you know, from this illness of compulsive overeating, but I died a long time ago. I knew I was screwed from the very first time I couldn't stop eating and had to have someone take me out of my apartment. I knew that there was something seriously wrong. So it does take working like the devil, you know, to get recovered. It's not easy. It's it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And that's time what it's please. like. Oh, okay. And I'll just conclude by saying, and that's what it's like also in working with others. Um, it is a privilege to work with others. Thank you so much. I passed. Sorry I went over. Thank you, Lisa B. Katie G., it's your turn, followed by Harlan G. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning, friends. This is Katie G., recovered in Boston. I mean, one of the lines that I love is um, he did not distinguish between such people and the alcoholic. And for me, what I've been feeling a lot of understanding with recently is that um, there are a lot of hard eaters that look sicker than me and don't need this program in the way that I need it, yet they're in the rooms. And that's okay, right? Like no harm, no foul. But when we misunderstand the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind and the obsession of the mind that causes a living death, no, I am not dead. In fact, I'm not successful at killing myself because if I was, I would be dead. I've been a 228 pounds and 110 pounds, but I am not a hard eater. And when, um, I, when I'm sponsored by women who are not hard eaters, I will go to the end and I will have a living death. And that is not, you know, I'm not speaking ill of anyone, but, you know, harder eaters and moderate eaters are people who can come in and can get the quote unquote diet and just work the tools and have a little slip, have a little bit of this 
and have a little bit of that. And my book tells me I cannot safely use food in any form at all, in any form at all. So I need to ask myself, like, am I using forms? Am I the real deal after 13 years in these rooms? Am I the real deal or, or am I not? And if, if I am the real deal, then what does that mean for my program of recovery? It means it truly is life and death. And I, I have escaped a living death. And for me today as a recovered woman, I ask myself, where am I underestimating God? Where am I having living deaths in my own life? Where am I currently agnostic? Do I have a relationship with a God who can take me deeper in the areas I'm scared to let him take me deeper, right? In the areas that I'm like, okay, God, you, you take everything else, but, um, but I'm going to hang on to this. And then I just want to pass along the good drug, okay? So let your ears perk up. I know a young woman who, caught, who came to me maybe six months, maybe a year ago, and she was dying, and she was sobbing, snot-nosed, messy crying, sobbing, and she wanted to die. And because of that desperation, not willingness, but desperation, she took this program of action and followed it. And I'm telling you guys, she calls me now, and it's like... She's like on fire. She's got God. She's got gratitude. She's, she is an example of what this book can do. She is the real compulsive overeater, and she has taken this program and is, and, and is killing it a day at a time. And I, I, just, I wish that for all of you. And thank you. Another 24 hours together. And with that, I do pass. Thank you, Katie G. Harlan G., it's your turn, followed by Larry K. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks for your service. I'm Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona. The paragraphs that we read today really speak to denial. They really speak to a very serious denial. And what is important for me to remember for myself is I don't really care who understands that I'm a compulsive overeater. I, it really doesn't doesn't phase me in the least. I have friends that I have known for 64 years that I speak to and see on a regular basis. I love them and they love me in return. They will never understand what it's like to eat a fourth cookie. It is not within their psyche it's not within their their ken their their power of their brain to understand why anybody would eat a fourth cookie i don't care there's one person that has to understand the devastation the waste the horror of what this illness is and that's me that's the only person that has to get it Hank Parkhurst was the primary author of just this chapter. He owned a little company called Honor Dealers. They sold auto polish. And he had been, in, he had been a, a, a vice president of Standard Oil Company. He had worked at Standard Oil of New Jersey. He had been at different uh, offices that were huge for Standard Oil. Here he was working with Jimmy Burwell and Bill Wilson two alcoholics and as they set out to put DuPont out of business they had a laugh because here were these three alcoholics setting out to change the world but what they didn't have 
was they didn't have a denial about their condition. The key here is for me not to focus in on who gets it, who doesn't get it, I have to get it. The only step I have to work perfectly is step number one. And this, these paragraphs that we read today remind me that every single day that I'm lucky enough to arise in the morning, I have to remind myself I am a compulsive overeater and the idea that somehow someday I will be eat like a normal person has to be smashed. And with that, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you, Harlan G. Mary Kay, it's your turn, followed by Barbara E. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Larry Kay, just um, weighing in a little bit here. So we read about a, a business executive who wants to stay out of out of people's business, and I and I understand that sentiment. I, I get it. It, it. You know, now he may be in denial about the problem. You know, in terms of outward appearances, you know, there's there's something noticeable about people who have reached a high level of of spiritual awareness by the grace of God in, in these steps. And they may not be in a constant state of bliss. I mean, we wouldn't expect them to, but they seem to be in a state of bliss most of the time. That's what I've seen, regardless of what comes, in the midst of, you know, the storm that comes, as it will for human beings. And I know in my own life, I know that my state of, of, of cheerfulness is a, is a pretty reliable gauge of the level of my spiritual enlightenment at that particular moment. And I get that by working these steps every day to the best of my ability. The more cheerful, happy, contented, and satisfied that I'm feeling, the more aware I am of my deep connection to my creator. And I get that through these steps. You know, I, I, I'd suggest you to, to ask yourself this key question. I have to ask myself this key, key question. How do I feel most of the time? If my answer is that I feel anxious and anguish most of the time, hurt and depressed and frustrated, see food, alcohol, that was never my problem. If I'm feeling those feelings and so on, then maybe I have to acknowledge that I have a, a spiritual disconnect. And I have found that this spiritual disconnect was corrected, not made perfect, but it was corrected through this way of life, this spiritual way of life, through action after action after action. You know, and when you are spiritually connected, you're not looking for occasions to be offended, and you're not judging and labeling others. You're in a state of grace in which you know that you're connected to God, and that happened for me through these steps. And yes, the obsession was lifted, no question, no doubt, but that's the least of it. See, I know I'm, I'm in a state of grace, and I know I'm connected to the God of my understanding. It's not a religious thing, it's a spiritual thing available to anyone. And so I'm free from the effects of anyone or anything external to myself most of the time, and yet I'm still human. It's a, it's a great way of life, and I know that on the job, I'm a different guy, not perfect. But I couldn't, I couldn't be on the job. Now I can be on the job and I can show up because of these steps and the grace of God. With that, I pass. Thanks. Thanks, Larry Kay. Barbara E., it's your turn, followed by Kristen R. Good news. 
Good morning, Lynette. Thank you so much for your service, and thank you to everyone on October um, uh, volunteering. This is such a wonderful chapter, and I never read it with this group before. For me, if a sponsee or an employer in the workplace drinks and, in our case, loses abstinence so frequently, they have to be, for me, lovingly let go, knowing that when and if they're ready, the right guide will appear. At first, I was so egotistical that I thought it was my failure. It's not. I'm just a guide, a guide in human skin, if you think. They are the ones that have to do the work. Now, there are people who can indulge in what we call toxic foods without dire consequences. But for me, those thoughts will kill me. I know I did want to overeat without the consequences, and you know how that worked out. I had to work like the devil. And even though my sponsor was often put on my resentment list when she told me I had to do more further soul surgery, I ultimately was and remain eternally grateful to her. It said on page 150, we've just read it, I have enjoyed a new attitude and have been saved from a living death. If I am, it means simple surrender. And if I surrender every single day, wonderful things would happen. This book truly speaks the language of the heart. And I was committing suicide by knife and fork. I don't want to die. I want to live. There's so much to live for. So to you who are new or struggling, hang in there, work like the devil, and you will reap the rewards. We in OA have intergroups, region, world service. At present, we're in 80 countries. I know we're shrinking as a group as AA is expanding. We must do that, and I believe we must do our part by going out and talking to the medical community, going to health fairs, reaching out, and doing our urgent, utmost best to help other people. I have to work my spiritual program every single day, before each meal. Thank you, God for this opportunity to have this wonderful food and let it be enough. And what can I do for another person? So I always make a phone call and make them my dessert after a meal. It works if you work it. And I have to work it. Thank you again, Lynn S. and everyone. I pass. Thank you, Barbara E. Kristen R., it's your turn. Thank you. Good morning. This is Kristen R. in Virginia. Very grateful, compulsive overeater this morning. Um, This chapter to me is, um, I imagine, tough if you're new to this line and um, you're saying to yourself, what in the heck does this have to do with me? And my compulsive eating, how is this supposed to help me studying this work? And in my mind, I would just ask you to focus on 
what this author is very subtly saying, um, which is the CEO in the beginning who says he just fires people who are alcoholic doesn't get it. And so if you're focusing on how other people in your life don't get it, I'm going to ask you, are you not getting it? What would it take for you to get it? What does your compulsive overeating look like? And it's not going to look like anyone else's. We are all as different as our fingerprints, all right? So if you're on this line this morning, if you're a newcomer and you're not certain if this meeting is for you, call a recovered person, talk to them, describe your situation, and start reading the doctor's opinion. Because that is what's going to tell you whether or not you are a compulsive overeater in need of this program, okay? The other piece I wanted to focus on is um, the beliefs of the CEO. You know, the CEO actually has addict thinking, very black and white. We just fire the alcoholics. This CEO is, you know, obviously living in a river of denial. But what are my beliefs? What are my beliefs, not just about, you know, how my eating is, whether or not I'm a compulsive eater, but what are my beliefs about how I can be changed by this program and by a higher power? Am I 95% in? Just kind of, you know, yep, I'm, all, I'm 95% here, but there's 5% of me that still needs to fix, manage, and control everything, everyone, including what I eat. Is my eating disordered still? Am I sti- are my food behaviors still compulsive? What are the underlying beliefs that are driving my food plan? And for me, my underlying belief has to be that God is helping me today, not only with my food, but with my emotions. Because if I don't, if I don't turn to God and ask for help with the emotional buildup, as Harlan describes it, I am screwed. I am screwed because I will go back to the food. I will start saying, "Mm, this program, yeah, I did it, but it's kind of getting boring. And so now maybe I'll try a self-help book. Yeah, no, I have to be convinced. And if if I'm not sitting every morning and doing my, my morning prayer, my morning meditation, asking God just this simple question, God, please direct my thinking today. Please direct my thinking today. Thank you. I'll wrap up. If I'm not in a state of surrender, then I can't recover. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Kristen R. For those of us who might have come on the line a little bit later, we are on page 148, the fourth paragraph, the other day in approach, and reading through five paragraphs ending the chapter. Who would like to share? Melanie C. Bonnie C. Madeline R. Kathy K. Nessa R. Okay, let me read the lineup and we'll see if I missed anybody. I heard Melanie C. I think I heard Pete C. Bonnie C. Madeline R. Kathy K and Nessa R. So Melanie C, could you start us off, please? And could everybody else just check and see if they are muted? Thanks. 
Thanks, Lynn. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm calling in from Oregon. I wanted to look at this from an experience that I had while I was working uh, years ago and some sort of, I suppose, support to the employer today as I read this. And I um, had the um, opportunity to work in emergency services for a number of years, and um, I was more or less intoxicated on the job every single day. It afforded an opportunity for um, lots of buildup of emotions with nowhere to put those kinds of things. It was either feast or famine in that particular industry, and I was combing the halls um, every day trying to find something to put on that sort of thing. And, and I look back over my productivity there, and I had those same kinds of things, feast and famine, in which I would contribute to the to the work environment. And there are a few of us like me in that particular room, and I, I just shudder to see the quality of work in an industry that required utmost attention and, and expertise. And um, I was sharp sometimes and, and dull the other times in that particular place and way. And, and I ended up pulling that whole thing down on top of my head, that perfectly beautiful career down on top of my head as time went on, because I don't think that those kinds of things for in terms of obesity were recognized in terms of the kind of a kind of compulsive overeater, obese person that I was. Um, and I'm not really sure that they could have put enough resources towards something like I was experiencing there. I think it was well outside of their realm. Maybe it was the time. Maybe it was the understanding. I'm not real sure. But I do know that uh, my my direct supervisor, who was my friend for a number of years personally before she got that particular position, um, was was very stoic, very firm, very very pro-company when it came to a time that those things needed to be addressed in me years, years into this particular job because it had deteriorated so bad. And my heart was broken. My heart was broken because I felt no compassion. But truthfully, truthfully, the situation was that they could not have put enough resources into me. If, if, if there were that many resources put into everybody, I think that they could have gone bankrupt in some sort. I think that things have been worked out differently now in that particular realm. But as I've heard on the line today, the true full responsibility of this is mine and mine alone to work out through the steps with a higher power. And that's made the difference for me made the difference of whether I was employable or not and has built tremendous gifts into my life from that particular point on. And, um, yeah, what a nice place to stop. What a nice reflection to have today. And uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about that today and think about it. I'll pass. Thanks, Melanie C. Pete B., it's your turn, followed by Bonnie C. Thank you, moderator. Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you. Great to have an opportunity to share on the first hour. Thanks for calling on me. My name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater, recovered today by God's grace and mercy. And you know, this is the, you know, this to me, this is speaking out to the fact that you know, nobody should get fired because they're an alcoholic, and nobody should be fired because they're a compulsive overeater. That you shouldn't get fired for that reason. What you should get fired for is absenteeism, being a disruption, being unproductive not contributing to the mission of the institution or the, or, or, or the company that you work for. That's what you should get fired for. And unfortunately for us, many of the manifestations or the, or, or the results of our condition result in absenteeism, being a disruption, disrupt, you know, causing conflict, 
right? That, that, that's just the unfortunate part. And, and, it, and an employer is not doing the alcoholic or compulsive overeater any favors in protecting them. You know, all that they're doing is depriving this individual from the pain and humiliation that's necessary to drive them into recovery, right? So, so, so preventing them from, from, you know, preventing the alcoholic from getting to the bottom is, you know, you're depriving somebody from the only asset that they might have. So they should be let go, right? Now, unfortunately for the employer, that alcoholic's particular and compulsory is they're, they're, they have particularly decent skills. And it costs a great deal of money to get somebody trained up to be productive in many positions, right? So what this, what this chapter is telling us is that you need to give some leeway. You, need, you may have a good person. You may want to continue to nurture them. But by any and all means, if they're not responsive and they're not helpful, that person should be let go. And that, might just, that just might be the touchstone that gets that person into doing something about their condition, right? The point is that we have to be that we have to be, we, we, cannot, we cannot kill people with kindness, right? They shouldn't, we, shouldn't get, we shouldn't get any particular special treatment because we're doing this thing, right? At the end of the day, the only place that it's important is right here on this line and in these meetings that we go to. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Pete B. Bonnie C., it's your turn, followed by Madeline R. Hi, it's actually Connie C. Recovering in Tennessee. And um, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Um, it's been very interesting to listen to this chapter. I've worked for myself since 1991. And um, today especially, which has happened in every day, really, um, as the words unfold, Lines like, he might be shocked if he knew how much alcoholism is costing his organization. I just keep hearing it as his organization or my family or my business or my life. And then reading on and, and hearing the words, he should not be made a favorite. And my ego has me even doing recovery thinking, be a favorite, you know, with a boss, with a husband, with a God, with anyone and it got me thinking a lot this morning and especially with a dream I had last night because if I want any of those things to be the favorite of anything then on you know I start realizing I am right back there um, where I was in my disease because that's what it always wanted was to be the best to be the most perfect and that if I want that it's still there and um, I've got someone staying with me who's here for her dad's funeral, who actually died from uh, multiple addictions. And I started thinking as they're looking for Halloween costumes um, for their little 15-month-old, that my disease is like that too, that this twist of the mind can appear in many, in many disguises. And for me, this cunning and baffling, it might be dressed up as that one day. It might be wanting to be the best person that ever recovered one day. And so in my journaling this morning, I felt pulled right back into, um, like what was said earlier, back to step one, and let's move forward without any of the accoutrements that about put me in my grave. And with that, I'll pass. 
Thank you, Connie C. Madeline R., it's your turn, followed by Kathy K. Thank you. This is Madeline R., recovered uh, compulsive overeater here in Pennsylvania. And when I read this particular part of the book, I recognize how um, unused it is compared to the rest of the book. Uh, Not that I have not read it, but that I didn't pay as much attention to it. as vision helps me pay attention to it now, this particular OA meeting. And I found myself like the vice president uh, in senior management and in denial about what was happening around me because I had this one gentleman who was um, always with allergies, late for meetings, work not done, worked from home, uh, had to call and wake him up, those kinds of things, and not recognizing what it actually was and the denial about who was using around me. And then the chapter takes me to me, um, where it says down there that who we're dealing with. Um, Down on page 149, this chapter refers to alcoholics, sick people, deranged men. Uh, I've been there too. Um, You know, looking like the high-profile employee, thinking everybody thought I had my act together, Um, company abusing me because I was willing to work the hours to show my worthiness and because I felt so guilty about what I was doing when I was arriving late, um, binging to get through the day, um, attending everything and always saying yes and then being resentful about it and really being an alcoholic around my food while I worked with the company. But they were willing to ignore it. They were willing to set those behaviors aside because I was such a wonderful employee where it talks about, you know, how much was I costing the company, you know, by taking on too much, not being able to meet the deadlines that I was given. So it's interesting that, you know, as someone who was managing addicts and being one myself, I too was in a lot of denial at that point. And it's important for me today, even in my job that I'm working at now, I've let that whole big job go. I recognize I put myself right back in that position because yes, I am alcoholic around my food and my behaviors, which is key because, you know, my food plan and is fine and can be in order. But if I'm not living in steps 10, 11, and 12, I'm taking on and taking back and taking on too much. So it's just so interesting to me how this, this, these particular pages, I can find myself in both areas and always something to identify with. Uh, no matter what stage of the program I'm in. And with that, I'll pass, and thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Madeline R. Kathy Kay, it's your turn, followed by Nessa R. Thank you, Lynn S., for your service. This is Kathy Kay, recovered in Boston. And I've really gotten a lot out of this chapter and all the sharing, um, recognizing now more than ever how much my disease um, impacted my effectiveness when I was working full-time at a very demanding job because one of my character defects was perfectionism and another one was poor self-esteem. I was actually a very productive employee, um, but the harms I was doing to myself and to my fellow employees and bosses were significant and I had no awareness of the wreckage that I was causing. 
until I started uh, working on my own recovery. And I did continue to be employed um, for a number of years after I started to work the 12 steps. And little by little, my uh, full-time anxiety um, and workaholism uh, diminished somewhat as I became more and more guided by my higher power. Um, But I have to say, I know today that um, I retired when I did, not really because uh, I didn't want to work anymore, but because um, being employed full-time was too hard for me in terms of my emotional recovery. I needed more space to do my step work and to really address some of the spiritual malady that I had come to understand. So I I read this with mixed emotions, recognizing that the harm done to me and to others was pretty great, and I'm grateful that I'm in recovery today and I can approach the work that I do do in a different way. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Nessa R., it's your turn. Hi, thank you. Good morning, Vision for You. My name is Nessa R. I am a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. And uh, when I read this, um, these paragraphs, what comes to mind is the transformation, the amazing personality change that takes place once um, we put down the food entirely and we work the steps faithfully according to the big book to get to the solution, which is a relationship with God, um, to provide the sense of even comfort that I have been seeking all, all along in the food, but never really got. Um, you know, when, um, when I was employed uh, by a large company, I used to work with a large financial institution in Toronto, um, I was not a, a very trustworthy individual, uh, wasted a lot of time and money and resources, not only because I made multiple trips during the day for multiple lunches, snacks, et cetera, at the food court, as well as multiple um, trips to the bathroom to get rid of it all, um, but also because I paid expenses, I took supplies home, uh, et cetera, all of it. I've made uh, amends you know, a long time ago. Um, I also created a lot of conflict in my company, and uh, which you know came back and hit me like a boomerang because I was passed up for promotions and eventually I got fired. Uh, now I, I have my own company, and um, you know I can see it in somebody else. I um, you know we give uh, company credit cards to some of the employees, and one of them is actually a recovered alcoholic. And he is the one that I can trust always to do what is right. You know, he is um, very, um, very organized and meticulous, keeping track of his expenses, submitting his expenses, uh, matching receipts to the credit card statement, not one missing, um, you know, never really uh, wasting a minute of the day. Uh, not, you know, padding appointment times, he can go home early and all those things. And it's just, it's just awesome to see what is possible. 
um, um, when we truly work this program. And I see it in myself, but I see it in him. I see it in others. And it's just, it's just beautiful. Um, anyhow, with that, I pass. Thank you, Nessa R. We have time for one more share. Who would like that time? Ross M. Okay, I heard Russ M. Please go ahead. Uh, this is Russ M. over here outside of Philly. So, if there's any uh, sports fans out there, you may know Chris Carter. All he does is catch, catch touchdown passes, right? But before he did that, before he became one of the greatest wide receivers to play the game, Buddy Ryan caught him. He caught him because he was a junkie. Chris Carter, to this day, if you see him on SportsCenter, somebody asked him about that. He said it was the best thing that ever happened to him that Buddy Ryan fired him, cut him from the Eagles so he can get his stuff together. He hit the bottom, <laughs> and, he, and his life became – he changed. So I just wanted to share that because that's what I got out of this reading, that, you know, we can't – you know, you've been saying it, kill people with kindness because we're killing them. We're killing them. So I wanted to share that with you. And uh, it stuck out to me. You know, we got to hit the bottom. We can't protect people. So, love you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you, Russ M. And thank you to everybody who shared today. And thank you to Team Friday for their service in October. Lisa L., Zakia J., Lauren N., Madeline R., Kelly S., Anna K., and Sima M. Please join us for a second unrecorded hour of study immediately following closing. And the share ID for today, Friday, October the 26th, the 7 a.m. meeting is 12103. We will now close with the reading from the big book on page 164, followed by the serenity prayer. Will Madeline R. please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Madeline R. Priest Pass Star One. Madeline, we can't hear you. Hi, I'm so sorry. I must have hit a mute button. You can hear me now? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Sorry for the disturbance. Okay. <laughs> Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answer will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. 
until then.